The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're just getting a start into our new series, Living in the Light of Christ's Return. And the principal doctrine that occupies us in this study is the doctrine of sanctification. The word sanctify means to be holy. It primarily refers to our morality. It's the doctrine of of, of Christian living. And that Christian living is the product of the Holy Spirit's work in every believer. That when we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer and then he begins to conform us to the image of Christ. And to put it more simply, to be sanctified, to be holy, is to be like Jesus. And it means to live with the same principles in your life that ruled his life. Christ was obedient to his Father and the degree of our sanctification is dependent upon how closely that we live to our Heavenly Father. Our sanctification is our attitude that we have towards God, and importantly, it also includes the attitude that we have towards each other, so that Jesus expressed the entire scope of, of who He is, who God is, and what we should be in just two commandments. In two commandments, to love God with all that you are, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want a synopsis of the holy, sanctified life, what does it mean and what is Paul talking about in this letter? Then you can look in chapter 4 and the first 12 verses of that chapter summarize what it means to live in the light of Christ's return. And the verse that anchors that entire section is verse number 7, which says, For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. Now our study today... It's the opening verses of Paul's letter. And the theme is his sincere thankfulness for the Thessalonian church. And you may ask, well, why is he so thankful for this church? And why this one? And why are we talking about some other church? Well, he's thankful because this church that was founded less than two years before he wrote this letter, a church that had not yet been fully grounded in the Word of God, this is a church that already showed signs of being very strongly committed to gospel preaching and to missions work. In verse number 7, he said, You are an example to believers throughout the world. In verse 8, we see that when Paul traveled around, he found that there were already believers in many places Because they'd heard the gospel through the faithful witness of this Thessalonian church. So he said, I don't really need to say anything. Because of you, people know about Jesus. And I'll have to say that this kind of a church is a rare find. Many of the other churches that Paul founded weren't like this. You can read the other epistles and you see him dealing with moral and doctrinal questions and trouble in the church. And churches throughout history have... have have had these problems, they've had trouble moral over moral and doctrinal questions because the devil is always on attack and sadly to say more churches fail in morality and in doctrine, more churches fail than they succeed. I suppose the New Testament is structured this way 
that is written with more to correct us than to praise us because living a sanctified holy life requires a very very strong commitment of faith it's very difficult to overcome the enemy we become discouraged so often and discouraged easily the devil is adept at demoralizing god's people he is adept at sowing seeds of apostasy in the church and this is what made the Thessalonian church such a welcome relief to the apostle. Now let's read these first three verses. Last week we read the entire chapter to get our bearings and to lay a foundation for good understanding of the elements that are in the letter that involve the church's faithfulness. And this uh, chapter ends with Paul's comment that we are waiting on the return of Christ from heaven and that his salvation will deliver us from the wrath to come. Verse number one, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. In verse number 2, the apostle says, We give thanks to God always for you all. Notice the we in that verse. And we began the message last week dealing with that pronoun, we. And the first part of our outline was the gospel fellows. The we in the verse is Paul and his two traveling companions. They were the missionaries that brought the gospel to Thessalonica. These were men that were joined together in the Great Commission, a commission that is a heavenly calling, the calling to preach God's wonderful salvation in Jesus' name and to start churches in the name, new churches, in the name of Jesus Christ. Several weeks ago, I wrote an article in our bulletin about the primary goal of all gospel endeavors. And that goal is to plant new churches. It's to make new disciples and organize those disciples into fellowships with a commitment to each other and, of course, a commitment to the cause of Jesus Christ. You see, since Christ called out those original disciples and formed his church, when he promised this great enterprise of the church it's always been his intent that the church would be the means of reaching the world with the gospel. Only the church has been given that commission. No one else has the right to even preach God's word. No one else has the responsibility. When Christ ascended into heaven, he left this world with a commission to his church. A commission to preach the gospel. Christ loved the church. He made it the pillar and the ground of the truth. Which tells us you can't do without the church. And he started his church with sanctified disciples. And the goal of that very first church was to replicate itself with other disciples. Other sanctified disciples. And again to make new churches. So the gospel fellows that we find in the passage are Paul and Silas and Timothy. They are the we in verse number 2. They are the we in the following chapters and verses. And the thing that I really, really love about the Apostle Paul that really strikes home to me in this, in this particular time is that, that Paul was not a glory hound. And so I just love the way that he credited faithful men 
that accompanied him. These were good men. They were helpers in the cause of Christ. But they didn't have the unique calling that Paul did. I mean, they hadn't been called like Paul was to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not with the same authority that he had. And so Paul very very easily could have ignored their contribution to the work. And he could have stood back and he said, this is about me. I'm, I'm your great leader. I'm the man. So you can look at me. I'll tell you what you need to do. And you give me the honor and the praise for the things that I teach you. And that's what many preachers today do. They stand in the pulpit and their idea is to exalt themselves, not Jesus Christ. That is not the Apostle Paul. That would have not have been a sanctified attitude to say, look at me and not commend his fellows, the ones who helped him in the ministry. So Paul gave these two their credit because the gospel is best served by a group cooperation. And every good gospel minister knows this, that the work that we do is too much for us to do alone. There's too much to be done. There's too much responsibility. I may be the person who is up front and visible and, and every week when I stand here, and as I've said, you may call me the face of the church, but I know very well what it takes to run these services. I know very well what it takes to make this ministry possible. First, it has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit or it won't work. It must be done that way. Without the Holy Spirit, we're a club, not a church. Secondly, it's the men and women. The men and women who work behind the scenes to make a church service possible. It takes a lot of that kind of help to be successful. And I, I believe that each one of you that help in the ministry of the church, that you're going to be rewarded for every life that is touched by this ministry. And that's true, even though you may never have an opportunity to stand where I'm standing. You may never have an opportunity to get up behind the pulpit and preach a message, but you're companions in the work of the Lord nonetheless. You're needed every week because we are together here for the gospel and I realize that more and more in the troubles that I've had this week and with people calling me and praying for me and praying for my wife and, and all the texts and the emails and cards and such, such that we get, we understand we are in this together. That what happens to me has happened to you. And what happens to you also happens to me. We are together for the gospel of Christ. In Philippians, Paul wrote, Stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It isn't my church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And together we magnify him through sanctified service. So Paul's companions are Silas and Timothy. They were committed to the work. They were other companions. There were others that turned against him. If you want to read more about that, you can Look in First Timothy and Second Timothy and see that there are other companions that turned against Paul and left. Some of them were very grievous to his ministry. And not only did they leave, but they worked against him. But here are two companions that were never part of a scandal. And would you think about that for just a minute? Can you think about your Christian life and what you're doing for your church? Are you faithful? Are you committed to it? Are you sincerely committed to Jesus Christ? Do you support the pastor in his work? Are you subversive to what we do or are you submitted? That's part of your sanctification. How long will you hold out faithful? 
Well, we see in this text that we are called to endure. And it also says that is part of your sanctification. So Paul was thankful for these men. He mentions them. But that's not his purpose in this letter. His purpose is not to commend himself. And it's not to commend these two men that helped him. His purpose is to say, I am thankful for you. I am thankful for the church. And why do you think he was? Because he found in this church many Silas and Timothy types. And how blessed is a church when they have Paul and Timothy types. I mean, what can be done for the cause of Christ when, when people will just throw themselves into the, into the cause of the gospel? It made this church known everywhere as a missions church. And might I make another point about being involved with the gospel? He doesn't say anything here about being impressed with how much money they gave to missions. Now, no doubt, they gave. They were willing to support others. We find that out in 2 Corinthians when Paul mentions the Macedonian churches and their sacrificial giving. But these are people who gave not just money. They gave of themselves to missions. They weren't just giving money to send somebody else out to do it. They were involved in the work themselves. They were there, the missionaries for their church wherever they were. And that's what you need to be for Berean Baptist Church. You need to be a missionary wherever you are. Telling people about Jesus Christ and I hope telling people that you have a good church to attend where you can hear the word of God. What is a missionary love? Well, in a, in a few weeks, we're going to have Brother Dan Morris, our missionary to Mexico. I don't know how many of you have seen the videos that, that he sent. And we, we sent those out by, by email. And you have to be so impressed with what's, what's going on in that mission work and the great job that he's doing there. But I know that when Brother Morris comes here to speak to us, he'll be here on the 20th, on the 20th of June, that if we were to ask him, what does a missionary love? What does he really love? And I think that he would tell you that a missionary loves a missions church. Because a mission church lightens the load for the missionary. This is what Paul says here. I mean, he didn't have to spend more time in Macedonia because the church took care of their territory. He could go to other places where people hadn't heard the word. He could share the gospel with them because he didn't need to worry about what was going on in Macedonia. The Thessalonians were willing to reach out beyond their walls and to give their community the gospel of Christ. Well, that's what we talked about mostly last week. And I want to move on today to our second observation, which is the gospel focus. Now, we have the gospel fellows. Those are the, the ones who are committed to tell the gospel to others. Now we have the gospel focus. And the focus of the gospel, I think all of us would agree, is that people need the saving message of Jesus Christ, and the focus of the gospel is to save them. And I will say that in one sense, that is the focus. We want to reach people that are lost in sin. People that are on their way to hell. There are some of you who may spend nights in tears thinking about your loved ones who don't know Christ. And on our prayer page, we have many of those loved ones. We pray for them. You don't want them 
to die and go to hell without having the forgiveness of their sins in Jesus Christ. And so we get together as a church and we just pray that the Holy Spirit will open these folks' hearts that they might receive the gospel they would hear and believe. And we would think, surely there's not a greater focus than that. That person, that individual who needs to hear about Jesus. And let's focus on them. That's the greatest focus. Or is there a greater focus? Let me give you another angle to look at the purpose of preaching that makes missionary work a feeder to a more important purpose. And that more important purpose is God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, do you see this in the beginning of the letter? This is a church that is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is our purpose? Why did God create us? Why, why would God create the world? Why would He create man and then allow Him to fall and need to be redeemed? That's a big question, or those are big questions, but the mystery of that is not really as great as some would have you to believe. It's not hard to discover what God did and why He did it when you have a mind that's open to the Scriptures. I had mentioned this to you before, I think some time ago, that I remember watching a, a movie a long time ago that was about a supercomputer that controlled the, um, controlled the um, American response to incoming ballistic missiles and, and so forth, where, whether we're going to launch, when they have launched, those kinds of things. And this computer by itself had entered into the process of nuclear war. And it was impossible for that computer to be shut down. They, they couldn't figure out how to do it. Uh, they tried everything, but they couldn't shut it down. And so in desperation, there was someone who went over and typed into the keyboard just a, a simple question. It's only three letters and a question mark. W-H-Y, question mark. Why? Just why? And the computer began to whiz and bang and spit out millions of a burst of binary code. And it kept churning over and over this question. Why? 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 And finally, the computer began to smoke. The continual processes were too much, and so it short-circuited, and the computer blew up. And the premise behind that, what the producers and writers of that story wanted to get across, is people, people believe this is the hardest question. This is the hardest question. Even supercomputers cannot answer the question, why? And you and I as Christians watch that and we wonder, what is the fuss all about? The question isn't difficult. The answer is God. The why of why we are here is God. We were created for the glory of God. And the way that God would receive the most glory can only be conceived in his own mind. Let me show you something. If you turn to Philippians chapter 2, a few weeks ago we, were, we looked at this passage in the Sunday afternoon service. Brother John Bunn preached a great message, and I loved his outline uh, on Philippians chapter 2. And it describes the condescension of Christ and then his subsequent exaltation. Philippians 2 verse 5, we're all familiar. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. 
And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the end of that section provides the answer to the question, why? Why was man created? Why did Adam fall? Why did the Son of Man become God, or Son of God become man and then have to die? Why is sinful man given the grace of God in salvation? And we learn from this that the final object of all of that is not man. Relate that back to what I said about the focus of the gospel being the people. No, the focus of all this is not man. The focus is God. That God raised Jesus from the dead so that he ascended into heaven again for his highest exaltation as God. And this means an exaltation that the script, that the, that the creature is able to see and to understand the glory of God in a way he otherwise could not understand. God created the world so that his creatures could recognize the mighty majesty of Jesus Christ and worship him. And God chose us and God worked out our salvation to demonstrate his character. His character of love and mercy and grace. And if Christ had stayed in heaven, we would never have that personal knowledge of God. But he came to be a manifestation of the Father in heaven. He came to show us who God is and to demonstrate God's love. Nobody would ever know how great God is, how personal he is, if Christ had not descended. If he had not come down to us and died for our sins... We never would have known. But he created us for this. This is the reason to realize the glory of God and believe him. Oh, I can hear the objections. Oh, I can hear the objections of the me society. Do you mean God intended to please himself first? Yes, that's what I mean. And be thankful for that, because if he hadn't, you would never exist to debate it. The primary focus of the gospel of Jesus Christ is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it, it's hard to understand, or is that I should say, is it hard to understand why God should be first in consideration? How would I ever tell you that what you need to do as a Christian is to put God first in your life, if God didn't consider himself to be first of the creation. Wouldn't make much sense, would it? God must be first. He must be primary. The focus must be on him because he deserves to be worshipped and glorified. You exist. You were created only for this, to glorify God. Now, people are unsettled. They are unfulfilled. They never reach contentment. People are always feel there's something missing in their lives until they understand this. My purpose in life is Christ. I was created for Christ. Now very simply, in all of this, I'm just telling you, you want to know the meaning of life? Right there it is. This is the meaning of every person's life. And only Jesus can give meaning to life. And if you have surrendered to Christ in sanctified obedience, you know exactly what I'm talking about. To unbelievers, all of this is a mystery. They don't understand. 
The natural mind does not understand the things of God. It doesn't know spiritual truths. But here, the, the Apostle Paul says, Ah, ah, the, the Thessalonians have believed. They are a church of God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they understood Christ must be glorified, that made them a missions church. They understood this whole process, do you see? They weren't focusing on the people, they're focusing on God. And if we're going to glorify God, give Him the greatest glory, we've got to reach those people who can glorify God. More people to glorify God. Now you see this in the second letter to the Corinthians. Paul said to the church at Corinth, the Macedonians are willing to give beyond themselves to the poor saints in Jerusalem. He meant that they responded with great faith to the needs of others. So the Thessalonian church understood their purpose. They know why God has called them out. Their salvation, their salvation was for Christ and it's their job to make more sons of Jesus Christ who recognize that God must be worshipped and glorified. So the purpose is simply this. The more souls won, the more there are to magnify Jesus Christ. Now we don't want to forget there's also a benefit for the believer. I think that it's a secondary benefit in God's plan. It's a good, great benefit. The believer receives sanctification. He realizes the purpose of his life. He gets the promise of eternal life and all the riches of heaven. And so it's God's purpose to get people down here, up there, well, they're, where they're glorifying forever. He wants to get you down here, up there, to glorify him forever. And you know what he does then? He starts that process in the present time, right now, you are to be sanctified to worship and glorify Jesus Christ. And then you're going to get up there and do that forever. He started the process now. So God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ are the source of the life of the church. The typical beginning of each of Paul's letters is to start right there. Jesus Christ. Romans, in Romans... Uh, Paul's subject is salvation. Those in the Roman study, you know it very well. And the rest of you do too, I would imagine. His subject is justification, salvation in Christ, all the attendant doctrines that go with that. And he begins putting us into the process of understanding this with that great verse in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he goes on in this letter, breaking down that statement and showing how God does this. But in the opening, opening of the letter in verses 1 through 3, he starts out this way. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets and by the Holy Scriptures. And verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. There's the part that you need to underline. The gospel of God concerns God's son, Jesus Christ. He is the focus. What he did for you is the focus. He lived and died and arose from the dead. That's the focus. So it's never what you can do for him that would make you the focus. And it's never your willingness to believe. Because that would make you the focus. The focus is Him. Salvation comes only from Him. And that is the summation of all the doctrines in the Word of God. Jesus Christ and Him only. 
So when I began a few moments ago, and I said, we preach Christ, or Paul said, we preach Christ. If you wonder, why do we preach Christ? Why do we preach the electing, sanctifying, preserving, perseverance, persevering grace of God? Why do we preach it? Because from eternity past to eternity future and all points in between, the focus is Jesus Christ. Now, if I might make one more point about that first verse, you've listened to me long enough to know that when we cross paths with a declaration of the deity and the equality of Jesus Christ in the Godhead, a point that is seriously disputed by, of course, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and some others. When we cross paths with the declaration of that, I'm always sure to point that out. And we have another instance of it in this verse. God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ are coupled in verse number one because of their equality. The grace that flows out of one is the grace that flows out of the other. And the peace that comes from one is the peace that comes from the other. It is God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, that give you your existence. You're made by them and for them. Now thirdly, I need to speak of the force of the gospel. In verse number 3, the apostle wrote, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Now the force of the gospel is to give it all that you can give. This is the Thessalonian church. This is their unceasing attitude in these three great spiritual characteristics that he gives in that passage, in that verse. Faith, love, and hope. How might you best define Christianity in the simplest terms? Might you not say just those three things? Faith in God, love God and your fellow man, and hope that Christ is going to come and take you to heaven. That's pretty much Christianity, isn't it? That defines our religion. That's the reason we are Christians. From faith, progress of faith, from faith to eternity. How do we get there? These three things. Faith, love, and perseverance and hope. Now the third of those... Is the, is the primary emphasis of this letter. It's perseverance and hope, and that is living in the light of Christ's return to take us into eternity. Now let's back up just a little bit to discuss the occasion for the letter. If these Thessalonians have these three things that make them Christians, faith, love, and hope, what more do they need? Why is Paul even writing to them? What more do they need? They've got faith, love, and hope. And they preach the gospel to others. So what more do they need? Well, there are many churches today that operate on those three things. Faith, love, and hope, or four things. And soul winning. Faith, love, and hope, and soul winning. But you can have all of those things in a church and not be exactly where God wants you to be. And I'm going to show you how. Let's recall last week's message. I spoke of the brevity of Paul's ministry at Thessalonica. He only had three weeks to teach them, three Sabbath days, three weeks to teach them everything that they knew about the faith. So it wasn't easy for them to be witnesses, but they were witnesses. But the troubles of persecution and, and standing for the faith led them to concerns about the return of Christ. Three weeks was not long enough to keep them on a sustainable spiritual plane. Finally, even having those things, they became discouraged and they were about to wear out. 
has Christ forgotten us? Now you see, they got the soul winning part right there because that's one of the first things you learn about your faith. You need to share your faith with others. So many of our churches have this right, but unfortunately, they're only three weeks old doctrinally. Oh, they've got soul winning, but they're only three weeks old doctrinally. They they don't make strong disciples because they aren't strong disciples. Oh, they think they are. But, but how can they be without learning more of the faith of the God they serve? Now, I want you to look at verse number 5. We're going to talk about this verse later, so just now briefly. In the fifth verse, he said, The gospel came to them in the power of the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. That tells us the Holy Spirit is necessary for assurance. In Ephesians 5, Paul wrote that we should be filled with the Spirit. That is not the same as being indwelled by the Spirit. Every Christian is indwelled by the Spirit. You get the Spirit when you trust in Christ. The filling of the Spirit is when we are sanctified and surrendered to do His will. Now there's a parallel passage that Paul wrote to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 3. And there he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so interestingly, these two things, the filling of the Spirit and the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly are used interchangeably. So the conclusion is that the filling of the Spirit and the Word of Christ in you is the same thing. Well, what's the connection to our study? We need more of the Word to be sanctified to be assured of our salvation. It's not enough for you to be a a soul winner and never improve your understanding of knowledge of Christ and the Word. Knowledge of the Bible is integral to our endurance, to our assurance, and to our sanctification. And with only three weeks, the Thessalonians didn't know enough. And so one of Paul's first letters to the churches, he started this one, He started this church and sends them a letter to encourage them in the faith and to increase their understanding of Christ's return. Knowing this more information would show them what to do as they waited for Christ to return. And the most important thing that you and I can do is to love Christ as we increase in our knowledge of Him. Sanctification is the doctrine that concerns our manner of life. So do you remember what Jesus prayed the Father would do? He prayed that they would be sanctified. His people would be sanctified by truth. And then he added, thy word is truth. So that tells us that a truly sanctified person is one who immerses himself in the word of God. We don't just learn stories from the Bible to repeat in Sunday school class. We learn how to apply those things to our daily lives and draw the doctrine out of it that we need. And so Paul encouraged these believers to grow in holiness and he told them how it can be done. This letter is doctrinal and practical. And sometimes in our churches, often in our churches, those two things are set in opposition to each other. One preacher says, oh, I'm the practical preacher. And the other one says, no, I'm the doctrinal preacher. Which one's better, doctrine or practical? Neither is good alone. And I would say you can't be practical if you don't have doctrine. Right doctrine yields the right practice. And some people need to think about that. Maybe their techniques for soul winning are all wrong because their doctrine isn't right. 
The practices of soul winning must be founded in the right doctrine of salvation. And so we see in the letter that Paul takes a very, very high view of Scripture. This is not something that you, he just passes over. He takes a high view of Scripture. Look in the second chapter, verse 13. I told you we're going to use this verse often in a study. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but what? As it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh in you that believe. So these Thessalonians received instructions from Paul, fully believing that the word they heard from him was the word of God. These are God's own words. And what did he say the word will do? It will work effectually in you. It will work effectively in you. It will cause you to act for Christ. So what did it do? It prompted them to the work of faith, to the labor of love, and to the patience of hope. In other words, friends, this is what the word of God does to you. It makes you a Christian. And if, and if, if, if the church teaches soul winning and then stops... It's not yet fully Christian. Christian means Christ-like. To be sanctified by the Word is to be Christ-like. So if soul winning leaves people as they were, without an evidence of change in their lives, then that soul winning is deficient. Not only is it deficient, but it's very, very dangerous. Now, let's just very briefly examine three aspects of Christianity. These are a a directional model for your sanctification. And since this letter deals with all three of these, we're not going to spend a great deal of time on it right now, and you're probably thankful for that, seeing the lateness of the hour. But I'm not preaching this afternoon, so we'll, we'll get to it here. First is faith. You have a work of faith. Faith faces upward. Faith faces upward. Every work of faith is directed upward towards God. Faith is a look at the past. You, you, you have been saved by faith, a faith that was worked in you by the Holy Spirit as a gift from God. It is a gift of God, and we must acknowledge the source of our faith is from above. Faith does not save. What? Am I a Baptist preacher? Are you sure? Faith does not save. No, faith doesn't save. Faith must have an object. The object is the one that saves. It is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith must have occurred. It must have been exercised before a person is a Christian. There isn't any sense that a person is a Christian who has not believed without personal conviction in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And yet, the largest segment of people who say they are Christians identify as Christians because they were born to parents that identified as Christians. Some say that they're Christians because they have this strange notion that this is a Christian nation. They are citizens of this nation, therefore they are Christians. Your birth does not make you a Christian. Your citizenship in anybody's country, anywhere in the world, does not make you a Christian. It is new birth that makes you a Christian. It's new birth that enables you to repentance and faith. And you are cleansed and justified by your faith in Christ alone. That is a very personal faith. And only then are you a Christian. 
So faith goes upward towards God. All of our acts of faith goes upward to God. This is something that happened in your past. I mean, you must be able to look back at a time when you were aware that you were a sinner. And that you needed Christ to save you from your sins. And you confessed those sins. You repented and you turned to Christ in faith to save you from your sins. Secondly is love. Love faces outward. Love is extended to others. Love to God. Love to your fellow man. We're commanded to love others as we do ourselves. And this kind of love presupposes faith. Because we're incapable of loving others as ourselves until our hearts have been cleansed by faith. Our motives are never pure when we say that we love others unless we understand and respond to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. By faith, we utilize the love of Christ as a motivator to love the souls of others. Compassion for others meets its highest expression in the gospel. I mean, how much can you love anybody if you don't care if their soul goes to hell? Don't talk about love until you've talked about that. The motivation for your acts of kindness and speaking to someone else the gospel of Christ is your former lost condition. You know what Christ did for you and you know that you deserve nothing. And you also know that Christ will give to others the very same thing he gave to you if you'll just tell them and they believe it. Faith looks at the past while love looks at the present. Love envelops what we're doing right now. Our thoughts, our, our motives, it flavors all of our activities in the present. Love shows up in the way that you speak to your wife and your husband and to your children. And I think love especially shows up in what you teach them. Do you love your children enough that you want their lives to be enriched with the knowledge of Christ? I mean, even if they're, if they're saved, don't you want them to grow in their salvation? Don't you want them to learn more of Christ? Do you love them enough that you want to see them filled and enriched by knowing Christ better? And that's one of the questions you need to check on your daily list of activities. How much time did you spend teaching them the Bible? The sweetest note I ever received from one of my children was from my daughter just a, a few months ago when, when she wrote to me and she said, Thank you, Dad, for teaching me the Bible and teaching me to love Jesus Christ. Now that, that willingness to speak of Christ is a clarion call that you care. Whether it's to your children or to others, that is a mark of true love, to care enough about others that you want to see them saved for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, there's hope. Hope looks forward. Faith is about the past. Love is for the present. Hope is about your future. Now in this sense, hope is the confidence that your faith has been placed correctly. Hope in Bible terms is not something that may or may not happen. We usually think of hope that way. It could or it could not happen. Uh, years ago, I, I don't know if they still do this. I, I remember girls would make up a hope chest before they got married. And... Um, they would put things in the chest they needed for marriage. I suppose that's what they did. I never looked in one. Or who can? It might have been full of candy. I don't know. But they hoped that they would get married. But some did and some didn't. And some found that their hope didn't last because they were later divorced. We hope. We hope for a raise. We hope for a better job. We hope our investments do well. We hope Bitcoin hits 100K before we lost it all. 
None of us is sure about those things. But hope in biblical terms is nothing like that. Hope is to believe as if it has already happened. It's to be so sure there is no doubt. Hope, hope is that you know it will happen. You're convinced as much that it will happen as if you were looking at something in the past. And the Bible teaches that when you trust Christ, you can have that kind of hope. Because what does he tell us? Eternal life is your present possession. And, and if it's present, there can't be any change in the hope for the future because it's eternal. I mean, the last time that I checked, doesn't the Bible say that? That, that salvation is everlasting, that it is eternal, it is unending. So the person who has everlasting life has a hope founded in a God who can't lie and whose promises never fail. And this is why the return of Christ is termed the blessed hope. There's nothing unsure about it. As surely as God is in heaven above, Christ is coming back. And notice in verse number 3, it's called the patience of hope. In Scripture, patience means endurance. Because your hope is sure, it will cause you to hold on and never give up. Why do people die for Christ? Why is history filled with the blood of martyrs? Because their hope was too strong to quit. To die for Christ is to enter the joy of eternal life on the express route. And that's not a bad trade when you believe that there is something coming that is beyond imagination. And so here we have the Thessalonian church and they have all three of these. They have faith, love, and hope. But because they lacked grounding in the scriptures, all three areas were challenged, especially the third. They were what we would call wet behind the ears Christians. They were inexperienced. And it trickled down to affect point number three, their future. They needed an increase in patience while they waited for Christ to return. And this endurance, how to get to that place, was dependent upon their sanctification. And how would they increase endurance? By being strengthened in their sanctification, in their holiness. And how does that come? Well, we've already said it. You are sanctified through the truth, and the word is truth. So this is Paul's letter that is a journey into truth with the Thessalonians. And with this next verse, verse number four, that's next week, with verse number four, we begin the doctrinal support that deepens faith. The more doctrine you know, the stronger your faith, the deeper your love, and the more assured is your hope. So first and second Thessalonians, these are wonderful books. And folks, this is, this, is, this is just the beginning of our journey with Paul into the hope of living for Christ until he returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we're told here how we can look forward to your, to your coming and have no doubts about it. To be assured in our hearts that should the worst ever come upon us in this life, that we have nothing to fear, nothing to worry. Satan is not great enough to conquer the hope that we have in Jesus Christ when we are sanctified through the truth. And your word is truth. Help us to preach the truth. And may you open the hearts of your people to believe the truth. To stay in the word of God. Be consistent in that. And that's how we become strong believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. 
If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.